0: Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of Skirt, a real horror show, only on the FYIZ podcast feed. I'm John, and my guest this time is the one and only Ramsey Campbell, a writer with six decades under his belt and who gets justifiably laudatory blurbs from peers like Neil Gaiman, Guillermo del Toro, and Stephen King. If you've read him, you know why they say such nice things, as Ramsey is an acute observer of human interaction, uh, a, a, a gifted setter of pace and mood a clear lover of language who can really turn a phrase and perhaps best for me, he's a purveyor of my favorite subset of genre literature, folk horror on the cusp of cosmic terror. Um, and maybe vice versa. Uh, he, anyway, he's a fellow who writes for a few hours every day, and he has about two dozen collections worth of short stories to show for it, as well as 35 novels, uh, the most recent of which, Fellstones, was just published by Flametree Press. So no two ways about it. It was a genuine thrill for me to chat with Ramsey, a guy who I found to be rather affable for a lord of the unknown, uh, and hopefully you will too. So here he is. This has been a long career. You got started very young, right?
1: Yeah, yes, gosh. Yes, yes. Mid mid teens, yeah. Sixty years in the business. And that was when
0: you were first published. Yeah. Correct. That's yeah. right. So that's you were right. writing before that. You had aspirations or,
1: or... uh yeah, I read Black Fingers from Space. I wrote when I was seven, I didn't complete it, but I, I wrote some chapters of a novel called Black Fingers from Space when I was seven and a half. And uh it can be found by the unwary uh, in an introduction to one of my books, actually, and um, you know, <laughs> much may be changed by the experience. Uh, and yeah, certainly, I did a, a collection of, of short stories when I was eleven, um, called Ghostly Tales, which included the line. Um, the door banged open and the aforementioned skeleton rushed in, which <laughs> I, uh, I, I I feel like I must own up to. Uh, and then, you know, uh, did a, a few more things, um, tentative things sort of after that, and, and began to try and sort of model myself on writers I admired. So I had a bit of a go at Arthur Macken, when I was twelve or so. I mean, that that petered out, but you know, I wrote a few, I don't know, 50, 60 pages of that. And then and then got on to the 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 detective fiction writer, John Dixon Carr, when I was 13, I suppose. because um, I very much admired his sense of the macabre, but even occasionally of the uncanny, you know, because he was a great, great admirer of M. R. James. And he some of that creeps into you know, quite a lot of his fiction. But you think, I mean, you know, here's here's a detective story writer with titles like "It Walks by Night" and "He Who Whispers." You know, so there's a you know a real sense of something a, a little bit weirder than 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 average in his work. And I, I had a go at writing. Um, oh, well, good Lord, you may have seen this thing, "Murder by Moonlight." It was a my my my, my go at a John Dickson Carr style, you know, impossible crime kind of a novel with, with lots of bizarre. Clues scattered about. And the only problem is I never finished that. Now I can't remember what the clues were supposed to mean. I can't even tell you who did it. So there you are. I, I must leave it to posterity to, to fix that. But it was only really um, when I was, well, let me see. I was 14. Now, th- this th- not, that, that's not impossible to believe. But I'll tell you what might be difficult to believe was that in 1960, there had been no single paperback collection of H.P. Lovecraft ever published in Britain. You couldn't find him. The occasional short story in an anthology, that's all you would get. Now, occasionally it would be something like the, the Color out of space, or so a major piece. But even most of the, you know, the major work you couldn't find. Um, you know, the Rats of the Wars, the Dunwich Horror, the Call of Cthulhu, you know, none of those. And so all of a sudden, here was this paperback, which is actually a reprint of a a late 40s Avon paperback called The Lurking Fear, edited, I do believe, by Don Walheim for for Avon, Um, now retitled Cry Horror, with a wonderful um, kind of loathsome creature on the cover painted by Richard Powers. And... um, I remember thinking, you know, it's half a crown, two and sixpence. That's a whole week's pocket money. I don't (laughs) even have this money on me. And if not, if I go away and get the money, by the time I come back, the book will have gone. I'll never have seen it again. But, you know, luckily I managed to to spend together that half a crown buy the book. So the entire next day, got to say, I I, I bunked off school to do this, uh, just reading the book from cover to cover. And at this point, I knew this is what I'm about to do. I think, yeah. you know, this is, this is my model. I want, I want to do something like this. Um, and, well, not in mean, that same year, you know, later that same year, still 14 years old, I guess, um, I began to try. And uh, ultimately, you know, with a good deal of editorial advice, which I sorely needed from August Erleth at Arkham House, um, you know, those first stories saw print.
0: The idea of these kind of popular, well... The popular form of the horror short story, whether all the writers were popular or not, but the idea of writing these—it's uh, this kind of mix of—and it's something I wanted to talk about in regards to your style too, sure. uh, it, which is this kind of mix of the literary and the pulpy. You know, this 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 knowledge that you you've sort of got the tease of something pulpy, teasing you along, but the the best writers, in my opinion, working in that field, are the ones who can embed you in a reality uh before they lower the boom so to speak and i think right. that like right. i would I, I i would say that's a trait of a lot of those weird fiction writers some of the people you named i mean like mackin um mm. uh, blackwood uh that you know they 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 would draw these stories out and there wouldn't be always these obvious uh, moments like the you know jump scare type moments there would almost sure. be a, a, a creeping sense of of dread that would be the real weapon and that's such a An interesting effect to try to create. Yes.
1: I think one of the things above all for me is the gradual accumulation of detail and you know accretion of subtle, subtle hints and gradually building towards this this tremendous revelation. I mean, I I actually think that's probably the most difficult thing to bring off in this kind of fiction is that transition from you know the suggestive to the explicit. If you do that, obviously there are great stories like Probably most of Robert Aikman, for instance, that don't make the transition to the explicit. You know, they stay enigmatic and, and you know, almost withdrawn throughout. Um, and that could work extremely well too. But but I mean, I think few few more than Lovecraft managed to do that 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 modulation into the you know, in, into the eventually um revelatory if you like um, but you know certainly that's the truth that he was drawing upon people like 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 Mackin and Blackwood and indeed eventually although he didn't read Lovecraft did not read M.R. James until I think 1926 but eventually you know some of James I think creeps in there as well you know obviously Lovecraft learned from what he regarded as the best of the work of of the authors he admired and you know well I guess we all try and do that really
0: people talk about the appeal of horror as something that like attaches to some primal need like people talk about how like and it's a convinced, it's a pretty convincing argument when someone talks about how we used to have predators and now we kind of don't in general you know um, yeah. but we still have this biological need to sort of feel adrenalized or to feel that there's something inside us and i think there might be some truth to that natural imperative but i think there's something else going on with people that are drawn to this sort of fiction and i know that yeah. i find it to be like a little bit of a pressure release valve, not so much for something like instinctual, but something intellectual that gets really uh, tied yes. up. My existential dread, that's a very heady thing, not not really like a gut thing. Um, I find that the the sort of fiction we're talking about, not just horror, but specifically weird fiction, really yeah. plays with that idea of just the malleability of reality and the malleability of your perspective on it.
1: Very much so, yes, yes. And I, I think in a more general sense, I think it's the, the engagement of imagination. I mean, that's why I write fundamentally, you know, to, to, well, to engage my imagination in the writing, and I hope you know, engage yours in the reading. That, that, in, by the same token, that's why I read in the field, which mean, is not, not all that I read by a long shot. But I suppose from a very early age, I, I've valued the disturbing. You know, wherever I could find in in any of the arts, you know, basically something that will, and also I guess something that will make you look again, um, yeah. which is a true of criticism as it is of of fiction or of any any of the arts, I think. But you know, that that sort of you know reacquaintance with reality, if you like, the, the turning it turning that little bit to look at it from a different angle, a different side. Um, and I think this is one thing that, that, if you like, let's say, weird fiction does, you know especially well and as again as you say you know however wide we cast the net i mean I, I mean equally i mean i cast mine extremely wide i mean obviously we're gonna we're gonna net, net kafka in there but you know um <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll tell you actually what my great formative experience was in terms of my attitude to, to the field um when i was 11 so this was, this was years before the lovecraft book came along but there was a book called best horror stories edited by John Keir Cross for Faber and Faber in Britain, which is you know, a very august house. And I think it would be fair to say that that book falls sort of just between the, the horror comic panic, you know, the reaction against horror comics in the early 50s. And that also happened in Britain as much as it did in America with, you know, the... the Questions in front of Congress, and shortly to come in Britain, we had the, the the horror movie panic, or the the horror, the sort of you know turning against horror, for the media turning against Hammer films in particular, which were you know regarded as being sort of beyond beyond acceptability. And I think in the middle of all this came across. As did Dorothy L. Sayers in the 20s, was trying to make a case for horror fiction as a form of literature and to reclaim it, you know, for serious literature, if you like. Now, this book, Best Horror Stories, it contains people we would expect, like Poe, you know, M. R. James, Bradbury as well, you know, but it also had Graham Greene. It also had William Faulkner. Back then, it wasn't common to find a rose for Emily, and that became an anthologist's favourite after that. But the the, the the longest story by far in the book is Herman Melville's Bartleby, or you know, Bartleby the Scrivener, which is basically about a guy you know, fundamentally dying of being non-existent in, in terms of personality. It was a, a, literally a hollow man. And it's a 40-page novella. And the editor, the anthologist, rather, says in his introduction, he, you know, he thinks many people will not take this to be a horror story, but he, he thinks it is, and so it's here. Now, here I am, 11 years old, I've spent well, fundamentally one week's pocket money because it's a hardcover book on just this one story in the book. And for me, it did fit. I didn't feel cheated. There was something there that kind of you know fitted into my growing sense of what horror fiction could be. And I think right there, you know, that 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 was hugely formative and you know a shaping influence for me.
0: You know, the the Bartleby thing is such an interesting thing because it it always struck me as like a, an eerie story, even though it wasn't always necessarily taught that way in in school when we read it. Yeah. I don't know that we talked much about
1: those aspects. No, of course, Moby Dick for that matter. You know, there's there's plenty of weirdness in Moby Dick.
0: Certainly. Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting thing. It's like this stuff maybe predates when those genres were sort of mm. set apart. And so it was like a yes. Melville, a writer who was just trying to write in whatever form, I guess kind of tickled his, his muse. Um, sure. he, he was a guy who would throw those elements in, but clearly he had some of that maybe sense of the weird in his mind. But I think with Bartleby, yes. um, uh, there was a film made of it that was like a modernization, but the film yes, play, played yes. up played up the kind of Lynchian creepiness mm-hmm. when he's at the office. All he does is say, I prefer not to, but yeah. when he's not there, there's no evidence that there's anything else to him either. Yeah,
1: that's right.
0: And there maybe is some, if you want to um, uh, go into the weirdness of that, you can wonder, like, is there a suggestion of some kind of... Force or entity or something that he's relating to, but you don't need that at all for the for no, the eeriness no. of what he's going through. And it really does seem like talk about an existential thing. It's a very modern idea to be like, okay, you can go to this office building and do this job, and it actually, if you could have like no soul, like literally nothing to you, and it would yep. take a it would take a little while for this existence to spit you out because it doesn't need you to have much of a soul. You know, going and working, being a scrivener wouldn't have been this massively fulfilling thing, even if he wasn't. Bar- Bartleby, but since he's Bartleby, it's just a no go. But I think that it's interesting that you mentioned that because that's that great sense of, and you mentioned Aikman too, who could do that, take the tiny details that are ba- barely off the norm and make you notice them. Yes. He's the one writer I can think of who could describe, like, Coming into a room and there's a bowl of oranges on the table, and he could make that somehow horrifying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. No, it just occurs to me. It's never occurred to me this before, but just as we're talking, you know, I think that there is a sense in which, because I've a great believer in the sort of tradition of the field, you know, the connections between the early work and more contemporary stuff, and it just occurs to me all of a sudden that isn't isn't can't we see sort of echoes of Bartleby in say Ligotti? And indeed, in mm-hmm. Mark Samuels, both of them, you know, very concerned with with the, the sort of office existence as as as, 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 a, as a weird mode of living.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of just a, like an alienating existence, you know, mm. to be to be Absolutely. in that job. Well, we've talked a lot about things we love about horror and things that get us uh, into it. One thing I've seen in a little bit of interviews with you before is you 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 kind of refer to an aversion to certain sort of occult cliches that a lot of horror is is full of. And I wondered, is that based on just overuse? Or do you object to those things based on how kind of silly they can seem? Or just in general, maybe even beyond that, what are some of those those horror cliches that you try to avoid in your own
1: work? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think it's more overuse than anything. I mean, uh, but, but, but on the other hand, I would equally say, you know, if uh, 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 um, a suitably lively imagination brought to bear on them can, you know, bring bring them alive again. There's probably, the, there are precepts in the field, obviously. Um, I mean, I'm not very fond, as a, you see, I I would actually make the distinction. It's not me as a reader. You know, I can happily read, you know, another another vampire novel if, it, if, it, if it's original enough and, and if the imagination is sufficiently engaged. Um, and, the, you know, there are plenty of those. You know, I mean, for heaven's sake, you know, Fever Dream, George Martin, or, you know, Drawing Blood, Poppy Z. Bright. Many others, Nancy Collins and so forth. Um, but, but, but I, I, you see, I thought I would never write a vampire novel. Technically speaking, I'm, I'm fibbing because I did write one. Back in the 90s, mid-1970s, I did three adaptations of old classic universal horror movies. So I did Dracula's Daughter, pseudonymously as a house name. But you know, nevertheless, here I am, I'm writing a vampire novel. So I've done it, but it was, I suppose to some extent, because I was writing, working very much from somebody else's material and actually trying to preserve as much as possible of the original as I could. I didn't technically regard that as, you know, r- writing my own vampire novel. But, you know, came, oh, I don't know, not many years ago, um, the last decade, actually. And I, I came up with the notion for a vampire novel. And it struck me as being sufficiently worth trying. And it gave me sufficiently as I went ahead and I wrote it. It's a book called 13 Days by Sunset Beach. And I mm-hmm. I actually think that, that there was enough to that novel that was... was was new, you know, at least certainly new to me as a writer, but I hope new enough to the reader to justify my having, you know, used this very standard, familiar figure out of occult literature um, for my own ends. So I think, you know, if you if you can find a way into it. I, I would probably sort of contradict what I' said originally you know that any 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 trope can be used it depends on 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 how fully your imagination can 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 renew it refresh it if you like um The business about you know traditional um real life occultism uh, I suppose it's a bit like you know Lovecraft's objection which is you know, which is why he created his own mythos, which is basically it was too codified too much is explained there's too much there that is is sort of neatly packaged that's what i don't want to do as a writer um i'd much rather suggest you know and 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 spark off um you know the imagination rather than simply deal you um material that you're already familiar with and so for me, too. you know, But for the very same token, when I started imitating Lovecraft back in my teens, you know, I didn't want to recycle the entities and so forth that he had already written about. I wanted to, at least, at the very least, to invent things of my own and you know, see if I couldn't bring up something a little bit new. Now, my, my view, actually, looking back, is that, you know, I wasn't sufficiently... Um, Competent, uh, you know, or sufficiently experienced in all manner of different ways, whether in terms of you know writing or in terms of living, um, to do proper justice to those those themes. Although the weird thing is, they've taken on their own life, and out there, they're out there, you know, in role-playing games, and you know, heavy metal bands are making songs about them, and people are painting and all sorts of stuff. But of late, you know, this century, really. I thought, you know, I'd give them another go and see if I can't do them a bit more justice um, now, you know, from my perspective now, which is why I did a trilogy that draws upon those uh, rather fully. And, um, well, I'm a bit happier with that than I am with the... You know, I, think, I think perhaps I've got a bit more um, ability to sort of communicate that sort of sense of cosmic awe, which is, you know, what one wants to reach for in that kind of fiction.
0: Well, there's, there's a lot I want to uh, kind of... Uh, reach back and grab onto about what you just said, because the cosmic horror thing is such a big part of the weirdness. I mean, like, if you look at what lays beyond the the weird, if we're talking about little mundane expressions of the weird that are off-putting, what lays mm-hmm. beyond that is the sense of, I mean, these words are overused when talking about this stuff, but the sense of the unknowable, the sense mm-hmm. of the undescribable. Um, yeah. Um, I know it's it's a it's a cliche, but that idea of if you see it, you'll go mad. Uh-huh. Something that breaks your brain, kind of, and makes you or it makes you over after you've experienced it. You've you've written some cosmic horror. Maybe even at a certain point early on, you were doing like. Pastiches of of a Lovecraftian style, sure. uh, and then you've moved on and even written a few things like knowingly within that mythos. But you've written so much stuff that it's such it's like a small portion of what you've written that you would call Lovecraftian. But that that cosmic idea does lurk there. And in the uh, it's the three births of Dowleth.
1: Yeah, yeah, Trilogy, Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I've read the first of that. Uh-huh. I mean, I definitely want to pick up the remaining two. Um, mm-hmm. I decided to space them out because sometimes it's nice to kind of save something for yourself. Oh, yes. But one thing I did see was you referred to just then, you know, this is like another go at Cosmic Horror. Yeah. And I'd seen you say similarly, this was a story that you thought would bear up to a trilogy treatment. And I was wondering, what was it about this story? Was it that made you think, not just, oh, this is another fun go at Cosmic Horror, uh-huh. but what what made this one different from some of your other stories in the sense of, I can see how this can be my trilogy? It
1: was Pete. Pete Crowther at uh, PS Publishing, my old friend and publisher actually, um, who, you know, well has been doing me since the, the turn of the century to publish the darkest part of the woods, or as uh, if you have the collector's edition, the darkest part of the woods, because you got the spine wrong, or the printer did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yes, Pete, Pete, um, oh, it must have been, I don't know, 10 years or more ago. Um, he, he you know, gently, but, gently but insistently chivied me, saying, basically, you know, nobody's done a, a horror trilogy. Um, and, you know, somebody ought to do one because he felt there was you know, the real scope there. Now, actually, well, two, two things. There was actually, I think, the Claire McNally in the 70s or 80s of the Ghost House trilogy. So technically speaking, I'd already been preempted. And by the time I actually wrote that, of course, Jeff Van Meer. Uh, you know, did the Southern Reach trilogy, which is, you know, a very, very striking piece of work. Uh, but, like, you know, what the hell, there's room for both of us, obviously.
0: Is this a technicality? Does Robert Block's Psycho series count as a trilogy since uh, he wrote three of those?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think we'd have to say it does. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd say so, yeah. But uh, I suppose the difference different It wasn't conceived as one. Right. Uh, so obviously, you know, it was only much later that Bob decided he'd, he'd do the sequel and then another one after that. And yeah. that was exactly the thing for me, you see, that... Um, what held me back was that, as far as I'm concerned, the the only reason to write a trilogy is is if there is a reason to write a trilogy. In other words, you know, it can't just be a big, long novel chopped into three volumes. There has to be a reason, as far as I was concerned, for there to be three volumes. And eventually it occurred to me that, well, maybe, supposing we follow the central character, and perhaps a group of characters, him and his friends, um, Throughout their lives, so we are basically the first. The first volume takes place in the early 1950s. The second has them grown up in the mid 1980s, and the third one is is well, is sort of around now. Uh, well, of course, it was written um, a, a very few years ago now, but but still, you know, it's it's slightly been left. Well, of course, it has been left behind by events because we've had the pandemic. And it was certainly written well before that and published well before that initially. Um, but but that was something the idea to, to follow the characters watch them develop and also the the antagonist, the you know, what they're what the, what they're fighting against, which begins uh, well as you know from the first volume, in the you know the, the 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 Trinity Church of the Spirit, this you know in this uh, sort of um, secretive cult. Now, but I, I'm not going to ruin it for, by saying this to you. I think that obviously it won't go away for the next two volumes, and by by the third, it's out in the open. It's just you know it it's got you know a big office building in Liverpool, you know it's in an, an open sight, and many you. Know, Know noted people are members of it and, and 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 are not secret about this at all. But of course, the the, the real secret is what underlies all this activity. Um, and the book, I think it's fair to say does become all the the, the does become increasingly apocalyptic. And I, I'm very much hoping it does deliver the promise of you know what what it hints at in the in the first volume. But I mean I did have a great deal of fun doing this, and I did find, well, I like writing novels. Um I mean, if I had to choose, it would be novels for me, simply because they they develop their own impetus. They, um, I'm I'm not a plotter in advance. Um, I'm, I like things to grow organically. I mean, I've you know, I've got idea. I've got a, a, a general idea of the of the development and, and certainly of of some of the major events of the narrative. Whenever I'm writing a novel before I start it, but and, and to some extent the order of events. But I, I really wanted to surprise me in the writing, and I'm so happy to say that they generally do. And even more so than in the trilogy, the whole thing did develop this considerable impetus. And coming back to these characters and finding out more about them was, was you know, pretty exciting. I don't believe I could ever do it again because I don't believe I'd find the material to do it again. But um, yeah, I'm very glad that Pete persuaded me to give it a shot.
0: Well, you know, given the way you typically structure your stories, there'll be a backstory, but it's usually like a a reasonably concise time frame or a storyline we're dropped in after a certain there's an inciting incident and then we get Mm -hmm. a story Mm -hmm. and I do think that with the trilogy I mean the one thing I know from reading the first part of the trilogy The Searching Dead is that it does start in childhood and you kind of alluded to that and so you're going to follow these characters which is is a great way to give a story kind of an epic scope which is sort of like what makes a trilogy feel like it deserves to be a trilogy is if you do get a little of that sweep and especially if as you've said the milieu kind of changes but I was wondering just because this early story is written with such affection for the for the uh, kind of experiences even though there's some dramatic circumstances that these kids are in the 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 friendships and the sort of Childhood reminiscence of this story was really strong to me. And I was wondering, was there a lot of biographical detail that went into conceiving of these characters? Like the, the the main character who writes stories about his friends and they call themselves the Tremendous Three. And this is something that at the time of the story, they're kind of starting to outgrow this, yes. this sort of childish adventure sort of story that they like to concoct around themselves. Uh, how much of that c- comes from your life?
1: Well, the extraordinary thing is not much, actually. Mm. Um, in a very general way, yeah. I mean, I was a Catholic schoolboy, for instance, went to grammar school, uh, somewhat like the one in the book. Um, but no, I didn't I didn't really have, I didn't have this sort of trio of, well, it's not a trio, it is the trio of friends. So I didn't have two other friends who made up the trio in that sense, no. I mean, I had friends, obviously, but, but the, there was never the sort of, I never actually, I never really, to that extent, wrote friends into stories. I mean, yeah, maybe I gave them the names to the characters sometimes, but that was a about as as far as it went. Um, And I mean, no, surprisingly little of it has any real autobiographical uh, direct reference. So for instance, is that early chapter where we get just a page or a page and a half, I don't know, you know, just giving you little sketches of all the staff at the school. None of those were like the stuff at the school, except, well, actually, there was a drunken Latin master. He was somewhat like one, well, and that was your lot. But I remember sitting down at the desk where I'm speaking to you right now, a pair of third floor of my, my, my house, what, looking at a across the river, the Mersey, you know, toward Liverpool. Um, that, that's, just, <laughs> that's, not, that's just to give you where I am. Mm-hmm. But coming up to this desk in the morning and just writing these characters one after the other, sketching them one after the other, I have no idea where they came from. They were just all there, all of a sudden. You know, they, they, they just took the morning to make themselves plain to me. And um, this is, to me, the great fun of writing. You know that that that, that stuff somehow. I, well, it's obviously you're know, tapping into your subconscious. What, what else can you be doing? But it is sort of like a form of possession, almost. I mean, it, it, the, I mean, the, the the edgier side of that is that you know, if, the, if you're driven to do this and I mean, I work every morning, you know, knowing I have to get up here, so I'm, you know, up sort of five, five thirty in the morning, and already, you know, the, the the words are sort of nagging at my brain to be written down. But in a way, that's a good thing because I mean, I need, I need, I need to compose some stuff to get me out of bed to write it down because I can't obviously got lie in bed and do it because I'm going to forget it, and that that's the real nightmare of writing as far as I'm concerned. You know, getting the idea in the middle of the night, let's say, and thinking, well, okay, I'll remember that in the morning and you don't now steve king actually says, well in that case it wasn't worth remembering not to me but just in general but i mean I'm, that's one thing i do disagree with steve about that you know actually i i have that horrible thing that anything i forget that was my best idea and now i'll never have it again
0: i i have had the experience of f- forgetting something and then re and then re-remembering it or remembering mm, it mm, and then thinking yes. This isn't as good... This is good, but it's not yeah. as good as I thought it was when I thought <laughs> yeah. I'd forgotten it, you know? So it's mm. like a little bit of... You're, I kind of am on the fence between the two of you on that, but I do think there's <laughs> yeah. there's truth to the idea that, like... Um, uh, I mean, I write songs, and I, I do little voice memos, and sometimes... Uh-huh. It's an embarrassing, cringe inducing thing of yourself going <laughs> running around a corner at like a gathering and you're going bah, 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 into a yeah. voice memo so that you don't <laughs> yeah. forget. But yeah. what what's funny is sometimes you don't even need to go back to listen to that. The fact mm-hmm. that you went and made a note of it helps your brain go, okay. Now mm-hmm. I remember there's this mm-hmm. thing. And then occasionally I'll go and I'll weed through those and I'll actually get a few ideas from it. So it is it is worth doing. But oh, I yeah. have I have found that it's almost like a kind of, it's just a kind of reinforcement because you yeah. will think there's no way, this is too good. There's no way I'm going to forget this. And then when yeah, you sit down yeah. and it's not there, it really does, it's like putting together a puzzle and suddenly you, you, you know, yeah. well, we don't have any more sky pieces and we need some more. So it's like, mm-hmm. it feels horrible uh, yes. to, to feel like you let an idea get away. Because I do sort of feel like they're up in the ether to be plucked by anybody yes, and yes. so if I don't have an idea uh, in my clutches, it, yeah. someone else can get it. And in fact, so often <laughs> when you do have an idea in, their, in your clutches you look around and there's a lot of very similar ideas in other people's clutches. Um,
1: oh yes! And yes, I was I wondering mean,
0: yes. about with you with such a long career, I bet you sometimes are in competition with yourself as much as you are other writers to say, have I done this before? Have I gone down this road before? How do I oh, make yes. it a little bit different? I mean, do, do, how do you know when you've got an idea that is not just different from all the stuff that's out there, but different from the stuff that you've done?
1: Well, out there, I just don't know. I just have to go yeah. you and know, take the risk and basically take the attitude that, you know, um, you know if, 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 you, if you have a sufficiently individual approach, then it's going to be a different story anyway, you know, even if the idea is similar. Well, I don't even know of a 30th anthology called the, oh, let me think, the Fothergill Omnibus. Does that ring any kind of a bell with you? No, maybe not. It's, it's, it's Worth checking out if you ever find a copy. Yeah, I mean, what, just what happens thinking. was this. I mean, the, you know, a, 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 a distinguished roster of writers um, uh, were all given exactly the same plot mm. by the anthologist, beginning, middle, end, even the twist in the tail. And they all wrote, so fundamentally, they all wrote the same story. And, well, it, it is interesting to see how many variations there are on, on, you know, such a, such a, 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 a an established theme, um, but anyway, to come back to your question, now, how do I, how do I know I've not done it before? Well, I, I guess I probably have some instinct for that. You know, I, uh, Although sometimes, yes, it turns out to be a version of something that I've done before. And because I've come at it from a different direction, I don't notice. But with luck, the different direction makes it worth doing anew or you know, a fresh, if you like. Mm. I mean, I have had the very occasional horrendous moment where, oh, I forget what it was, quite recently. Good Lord, I was proofreading... The reissue of uh, of one of my uh, 80s novels, I can't remember which one I'm afraid, um, and I, suddenly, I suddenly thought, good God, I've just written that sentence again, you know, like 30 years later, or mm-hmm. maybe more than that, uh, and thought I'd never written it before. So I, I, this is something I suppose I have to try and guard again. So luckily... With the increasing amount I've got on the computer, at least I could throw a search into the into the whole thing and see if the same thing comes up anywhere else. Um, but yes, that is a bit of a dread, uh, I grant you. But it's more in terms of phrasing rather than entire ideas. In fact, I've probably got more ideas than I, well, I do. I know I've got more ideas than I know what to do with. I've got notebooks full of the wretched things. So once I'm gone, they're, they're anybody's. Let's see who can else do something with them.
0: I find it mind-boggling that you write your stories without plotting them. I understand that, that you kind of have to leave some things for yourself to discover when you're writing. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's right.
0: But I also find it's very interesting to think of going through this kind of story and sort of trusting your instincts that you'll get there. Um, But I feel like that lends itself to a lead character who's kind of being an investigator or kind of, you know, almost like an old gumshoe yes. going, going around, finding a little bit here and a little bit there uh, sure, before. Sure. Because because it's sort of like for this type of story to work, the truth has to be kept in the wings for a yes. large portion of the story. Otherwise, you're getting into it, you know, maybe it'll be more like horror fantasy or it's a different kind of tale. But um, yeah. anyway, I just, I, I, I find that to be um, an interesting thing to think of having to, Having to trust yourself like that, like when when you say you really don't plot in advance, I mean you literally mean you'd sit down with what characters, uh, a logline, sort of a, a conceit more than a story.
1: Yes, and also you know so the the major events I've got, I've got scribbled down the notebook, and you know I'm I'm, I'm going to be gathering material for, for months at least before I you know set, set off on on the on the on the, the novel. Um, it, it, it's it's when you kind of get. Uh, a sense that you know, the whole thing is 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 kind of well re- reach, re- reaching um, reaching term, if you like. You know, all the material it it, it needs to be put out there now. Um, I, certainly, I have to work out the 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 more or less precise order of the early events to to start the first few. You know, to get going into the first few chapters. But after that, with luck, it should have gathered enough momentum of its own to. To, to carry on. And nearly always also, there are, there are things that I put into the early chapters that I hadn't originally planned that are going to become much more crucial later on. Than, than I would have realised even possibly when writing them. You know, once I've often enough these days, you know, if I introduce a minor character who wasn't originally in my mind, that they are going to return in some form. They're going to be they to be more important to the development of the story than than I than I would have realised when, when I when I when I invented them because you know they were. They may just have been initially, supposedly, you know, a device, a convenience, but they they proved to have more life than that and and more significance within the narrative. And again, this is, you know, remarkable, this is a great deal of fun. I mean, the the bad side, obviously, is is finding yourself out of the middle of nowhere, with no idea of how you got there and and certainly no idea of where you're going next. And again, you see, this is where I find that if I do reach that occasional, you know, moment of panic um that there's something earlier on that I you know just thought was a, a, a you know a very a, a negligible detail that is what I need now to to send me forward and and to you know to to give the, the, the to, well, to give the story more logic actually um and I suppose this is just, I think you're your if you like you know getting on with telling the story and the subconscious is getting on with its job. And it's doing the the job better than you're aware of while you're writing. At least this is what I find. And with luck, you know, I can still trust the old thing because I've got nothing else to work on.
0: There's something I noticed in a couple of your books where it's – and I'm I'm kind of obsessed with this idea of words you can repeat and words you should not repeat, Mm. Um, meaning just – word count in a in a script or in a in a story you know that like if you if you spend too much time coming up with synonyms for like a word like door or room you'll sound a bit foolish you'll sound like Mm, you're you're, you're saying aperture and you're saying chamber when you should just say (laughs) door or room or you're saying uh, countenance when you should say face we're fine with Mm -hmm. face Mm -hmm. but then there's other words that it's like if i hear the word abattoir or something like that if it's in a if it's on a page 10 times i'm gonna (laughs) think that's down there too many times but i noticed in in uh the the book ancient images and in the overnight Uh, And in in both cases, there was like one word that got used a lot in the opening chapters to set you up for like, what are the clues that something uncanny is happening in ancient uh, images? The word is stale. There's a uh, stale smell that's perceived and the word stale. It's not that common of a word and it's not like on every page, but it comes up like maybe three or four chapters in a row. Yes. and, and then yes. in the overnight the word is gritty uh, referring um. to like that the residue that people are finding on things and it's again it's in the early it's in the early going but in both cases I thought what an interesting thing I know mm. that that Ramsey knows more than one word for stale or mm. gritty mm. if he wants to so in other words here's Just. someone who's trying to find unique phrasings throughout but they're reminding me of this and then the next the third or fourth time I hear the word gritty I'm like uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> or the third or fourth time, I noticed, you—you know, you walk into someone's apartment and there's a stale smell. It's like, yes. mm, mm-mm, nope, don't don't go into that place. I, I just—I <laughs> I know that was a long setup, but I was just wondering how much you think about those things, uh, and do you even have a memory of of not necessarily those specific instances, but of mm-hmm. like trying to imbue a certain word with meaning uh, in a book so that it becomes like a little clue that's telling you, okay, the killer's here or the monster's here.
1: Yes, oh, I think so. But it's exactly what I think you're saying, you know, that it needs to be a relatively neutral word, I think, that that doesn't stand out too far or or it becomes too obvious, I think. So, yeah, I mean, mean, it's, it's weird you should say that. I have just yesterday, I think, finished proofreading a reissue of ancient images, so I know exactly what you mean, you know. And I, I noticed it myself on the rereading. To be honest, I'd forgotten I'd done it because it's mm-hmm. been so long, you know, I mean, about several decades, obviously, since the book was originally published. But, um, but yes, I, I see it there definitely. I mean, well, I'll tell you what, a, a great instance of this in, in Lovecraft is in The Rats in the Walls. You remember uh, his plump friend, and the word plump keeps coming up, and it you know, accrues increasing resonance and uh, an ultimate uh, you know ominousness, And of course, mm-hmm. eventually, if, if we haven't realised why, we certainly do at the end. Um, although, you know, interestingly enough, and I'm, I'm thinking aloud here again now, but you know, Stanley Ellen in uh, Specialty of the House, there's one adjective. I think I might say it appears only... In the final centre of the story, and if you don't see it, I think if you don't see why it's there, then you think, "Well, what was that about? You know, what, what was the point of that story then?" Right. Uh, but he, I mean, he does that very, very subtly um, with great elegance and wit. Um, and yes, well, okay, I'll say no more than that. But it's, 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 yes, it's. A, I suppose it's going back to something a bit, a bit larger in a sense that, um, to my mind. Horror fiction, weird fiction, whichever term we'd like to use. For me, you know, of all the genres, it's the one that depends most, at its best, um, on the precise selection of language. Um, and uh, you know, the, the, you find this in Lovecraft, in M.R. James. You know, I've tried to find this in myself, basically.
0: If, if we do believe that setting up atmosphere is all about bringing the reader into a, a world that they can believe in, and, you know, you can take pages upon pages to do it, or you can do it in a few sentences, you know, depending on the style of writing. You don't need no. quantity of words to make this happen, but it can be, like, the right level of details. Like, someone like Shirley Jackson is mm. great at—she's, like, a very economical writer, but she also does create a world, and you sort of figure totally. out where you are. Um, I, I, yeah. think that, I think that it sort of reveals something about the writer— if, if 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 part of the appeal of horror is that it sets up a reality that then gets shattered, that writer is revealing what they think normalcy is. They're, they're revealing what they think reality is. And it's like, if you try to write your own, like, write a happy family dinner, you know, and you'll be writing it. And you're like, wait a minute, this is very much my family's idea of a happy, happy family dinner to another family. This might seem maudlin or sarcastic or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And I think as a horror writer, you have to sort of know, like, not just, okay, what appeals to you or what seems mundane to you or atmospheric to you, but you have to sort of have a good guess as to like, I mean, maybe it's all about just trusting your instincts and hoping an audience finds you. But I do think there's yeah. a bit of reaching out to an audience and bringing them in, especially because you know all of these wild stories we've been talking about—they usually have some some strong grounding influence in them, either a character mm-hmm. whose whose details are very strong, or a job that is mundane, or a life that seems kind of boring until something happens. But like, I find that very interesting that a, a writer shows you their their idea of what normalcy is and what 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 is there to be preserved or what it yeah. is that's shattered by horror and i think that's something that yeah you almost have to have patience with your own writing i mean it can't be that nothing's happening and you're just making people wait you have to yeah. obviously be engaging with with that stuff like so if you're writing yes. a scene where quote unquote nothing happens um figuring out how how to make that interesting. And yet also maybe something I've noticed you do thread little details through even a very normal oh, yes. scene so that you notice, I mean, again, about halfway into one of your books, most of your protagonists have had two or three things that they were like, did I see that? Or was mm, that mm-hmm. real? Like they're beginning to accept it. Um, mm, and I find that's something no. that you really have to earn. I, I, it bothers me when characters in a horror story, accept. uh, the the supernatural too readily, you know. Oh
1: yes, yes that that that, oh, that is one bugbear of mine. Yeah, coming right back to that's one thing I try to avoid most definitely. It's one thing I, I really you know don't care for at all in uh, in, in 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 some examples of the store of the genre, you know. Um, because, but well, obviously you know, we have to accept that some people are going to, um, uh, you know, in real life, you know, some people will accept. I mean, there's that brilliant thing in Salem's Lot where, uh, where the, the the kid, you know, is the first I think to get onto the fact that there's a vampire of the loose because he reads Famous sponsors of Filmland, and of course that is, you know, <laughs> how it will work in real life. So I, I, I did like that certainly, but 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 in general, yes, I I, I get impatient with with characters who are too ready to accept. That's certainly true. Well, I mean, I
0: guess this it, it's a double-edged sword, because I also get impatient with characters who exist to deny mm, a, mm. a reality that's being presented to them. And in fact, I think it's something you use rather artfully, and I, I have to believe very intentionally, yeah. is that a lot of the conversations in your stories are frustrating as a reader, because we see how people are talking past each other. Oh, we yes. see how the, protagon- the protagonist isn't explaining themselves that well. Mm-hmm. And we see that the person is reacting poorly. Yeah. Um, and in fact, we I, I hope we get to your latest novel, Fellstones, in just a minute. And I mean, it's just chock-a-block full of <coughs> un- unsatisfying, frustrating interactions <coughs> where, where, our, where our main guy is really not I mean, he isn't trying that hard to be understood yeah. by people. He's a bit—he's a bit alienated and closed off. Mm-hmm. But like his conversations with his with his boss, his his girlfriend, uh, his his uh, his family that he's sort of estranged from and returning to, even people on the phone later when he has to call someone to bring a ladder. Yeah. Even those conversations are like fruitless in this almost Kafkaesque <laughs> yeah. way. And I was just wondering, like. Is that is that I know that you talk a lot about the humor in your work. Mm. I guess we can dive right into Fellstones then with this with this idea. Yes. Um, is that something that I mean? Is that kind of part of your worldview that these little meaningless interactions are very frustrating, or do you do you deliberately seek to in your in your fiction sort of? find the the humor and again some of the the cringe mm-hmm. in just in just miscommunication a
1: bit <clears> of both really but i suppose you know, what, what it always has to be for me is it, it, i want to i have to believe that this is how it would go you know that this is how these characters would uh interact um and that, you know there, there is some basis in in, in a general sense of you know how people behave, and uh, you know I, I think I think yeah, I, I think it's there. I mean, perhaps it has become a, a bit of a, of a of a style of mine, uh, but all the same, well, I mean, I have sufficient fun with it, and I hope other people do as well.
0: Oh, absolutely! I mean, I was almost laughing at it, like the third or fourth time somebody sort of failed to hear what. Yes. Uh, I don't know whether to call him Paul or Michael, but I guess he, yeah. he prefers Paul. Yeah, Is yeah, it? yeah. Um, I, I The third or fourth time, I was like, I was looking at Paul going, Paul, you could be <laughs> serving yourself a little bit better. But it really did seem like <laughs> yeah. there was this almost, I mean, we're familiar with this sort of conspiracy, uh, like his, the, the, his hometown, his home neighborhood um we're we're familiar with that sort of driving to the place mm-hmm. where everybody's in on the conspiracy. I don't mean over familiar. I'm just saying yeah. that is something that for this type of story to work. Oh yes. Ha- having the character travel to a place where everybody's sort of in on it is part of the fun. Yeah. But the fact that even the people that aren't in on it are sort of helping the people that are like you know his boss, his girlfriend, they're all sort of at different times, kind of antagonizing him, mm-hmm. uh, and into into feeling like the only thing he has in his life is this this thing he thought he escaped. Yes. Which we should sh- we should mention maybe the story in broad strokes no. is a is is about a man who, um, you know, he's kind of being called back to his family. Uh, uh, they they need him for something, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, they, they want him. I remember when I was a kid and I would go back home during college and my parents would say, you're going to church with us on Sunday, uh-huh. uh, you know, for this reason or that reason. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of like that. It's like he starts off thinking he's just reconnecting with them. And then it's as though they've got their hooks in him and they've got more plans for him than maybe he was anticipating. Sure. And I mean, that's very early in the book. And we spend a lot of time trying to puzzle together, like what's really going on? What do they need him for? Mm-hmm. And kind of witnessing him. Being sort of, they, they do a pretty fair job of manipulating him into exactly the spot that they want him in. Yeah. So I don't know if I did a good job of describing the story without saying too much. No, I'd
1: say, I'd think so. yeah, yeah.
0: But, 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 I mean, like, you know, maybe some of that inspiration. I mean, this is related to um, some of the stuff we've been talking about. There's a touch of cosmic horror in this, or maybe there's more than a touch, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not necessarily present on every page. Um, uh, a friend of mine, I don't know if you know the writer Gemma Files. Oh yes, oh yes. Um, well, she. I mentioned to her that I would be speaking to you, and I said, "Is there anything you'd want to ask him about?" And she specifically said, "The way that you're kind of the universe building that you're doing with your kind of cosmic horror stuff, the fact that we see how some of these things are taking place, maybe in a in a in the same in the same world as other stories. Yes. Um, how how much do you think about that in advance of writing something like Fellstones, but also?" Um, I guess we've kind of talked a little bit about how much you like uh, ambiguity over over explaining. Yeah. But how much is like, that's another thing to balance, right? If you're bringing in these kind of common elements and sort of connecting your stories to each other, Mm -hmm. you don't want to like ruin the mix. No, um, no. But by making it too much of like a, a, a... I mean, again, I think about details and how they can add to horror up to a point, and then beyond a point, knowing too much kind of takes away from it. Yes. So, yeah, what, yes. what, what, what 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 is in your mind when you're when is this one of these epiphanies we've just been talking about, where you're writing and you realize, oh, I can connect this to my greater mythos, or is that something that sort of attracts you to an idea in the first place? Yes,
1: to an extent, I think it is that you know the, that, the, the pleasure of 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 you know building a little bit more of a structure o- over the the course of the story. But you know, I have gone back to um, i mean in, it it's so, isn't it in fact where the the manuscript that he discovers uh, in an archive is actually written by um, the the uh, occultist from my old novel, The Parasite, from back in the late 1970s, and and I sort of like I, I sort of like bringing these things together. But as you say, you know, I I don't want to make it over I, I don't I don't want to codify it too much, basically. Um, so that, that I don't want you know, the light to be shone too brightly into these these dark corners. You know, I want to keep a, a little bit of a sense of a mystery. And as long as I'm doing that. Yeah, you know, i'm i'm'm I'm fond of doing it, and uh, you know on 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 the whole um these things tend to suggest themselves in the in the act of writing actually and i thought sort of, as you say I, you know, I sort of think well you know actually that could be you know that could have come from way back then, you know this other character um who well, indeed I think I'm not saying old um I think Peter Grace shows shows up somewhere else doesn't he I mean, I think, he, I think he, he's in the background of thieving fear, actually, from the um, the early uh, years of this century. And who knows, maybe he'll pop up again. You know, He made surprise. He's going to surprise me. These guys are surprising me, you see, in, in order to surprise other people I hope. Well,
0: I mean, another more obvious thread that I've noticed in in three things that I've read is the bookstore texts. Ah, yes, yes. Fellstones, that's where uh, Paul and Karen, his girlfriend, work. Yes. Um, and also, in a, there's a brief foray there, and I believe it's in The Village Killings, uh-huh. there's, a, there's a scene where we we pop into a text oh, yes. bookstore. Yes. Um, and yes. That, as, that's a natural, because that story has a lot of, like, you know, it's about writers, and it's about seeing who's on the shelf and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So, I, I mean, to me, that feels like, it's just once you've invented something... W- it's like, or what are you going to do? Keep inventing new bookstores? I, I oh. do think you, I, I do sense you have a little bit of delight in coming up with punny names for retail establishments. Oh, yes,
1: indeed. Mm. By
0: saying this is text. Yeah. Okay, this person's going into text. It means, okay, so that means theoretically the village killings, the overnight, and fellstones are all happening in the same
1: world mm. yeah i mean it's a bit like Arkham country isn't it i mean you know, when you consider the amount of things that were going on in this not very large area of Massachusetts apparently you know in, <laughs> in Lovecraft's universe and and obviously there with me you know it's bichester and the the seven valley setting that you know from my first book and you know that Keeps cropping up here and there later on, and there's actually so that in that in um, oh, the last revelation of Daki, which is you know by Lovecraftian novellas I did relatively recently, I uh, actually did postulate this idea of a sort of an, an occult area that draws these things in into itself, and this is why that we have got so many things popping up there. Bit of a bit of a mm-hmm. strained a strained idea, but it's the best I've got.
0: <laughs>
1: i mean i think it works um
0: uh-huh. i'm reminded of on the, the television show buffy the vampire slayer the ingenious invention of a hell mouth mm-hmm. this town is near a hell mouth yes. and that opened it up to you didn't need to say anything else to explain why monsters and demons were popping up at this one high school uh, yeah. and <laughs> then like maybe not making it to the rest of the world you know mm. Um, and I could see how. I mean, to me, I feel like, for instance, when I saw texts pop up in those things, I got a charge out of it. Oh, good, good, um, good yeah. Um, but I also think in Fellstones, like, not to not to leave that entirely. I think there's a lot going on there with the fact that Paul is working at this at a at a, like a a big bookstore that has a, a record section, mm-hmm. a music mm-hmm. section. And and his background was he was a bit of a musical prodigy. I mean, maybe even beyond a prodigy, some kind of supernatural prodigy. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and there was so much love of classical music that was built into this book yes. that um, I'm having to assume that must be something that's an actual passion. Oh, for. gosh, yes. Because, I mean, this book does make you think about, fellstones. that is, does make you think about the sort of power of classical music yes the the scale that it the emotions of it the 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 storytelling of it it's a huge it it's very cosmic in a way <laughs> in its own right
1: yes. yes yes i think so yeah oh yes certainly that was one of the appeals of the book but it, it was it was the, the fundamental notion of Perfect pitch. Not that I have anything like that, but you know um, that that, 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 that uh, was crucial to the book, and that then let me talk about you know uh, and you know drop in little uh, insights as such as they are from my own you know love of classical music. For want of a better term, classical. You know, it, it, it it's not really. Classical, you know, in a sense stops before romantic music, but but it, you know, it's the best term we've got, I think, because equally serious music doesn't really work because, you know, it's, is it, 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 I don't know, it's, it's Mozart's musical joke more serious than, you know, Paul McCartney's yesterday? I don't think so. So you know, it's impossible to find a, a a truly apt term that classical will have to do. But yes, yes, that was... I mean, just as... Um, writing something like ancient images, you know, let me, you know, uh, well, if you like, indulge my love of old horror movies, you know, and um, the grin of the dark with with um, the silent cinema. And so it goes on. Um, I mean, I, I, Probably you know I've probably got another movie background novel in me yet if I can only really think what to to do with it. So mind you, I have written a book of a book of movie uh, reviews. So maybe that's how I get those things out. And let me tell you, I know this is irrelevant, but just, just so that I can shock you and your and your listeners that um, one of my present things nearly completed now is a, a something over seventy thousand word monograph on the Three Stooges.
0: No, I, I was going to ask you about that. So I'm, ah. glad, you, I'm glad you came to mm. it. I mean, obviously, that might be yep. I, I, there's an obvious answer to this question. Is this a is this a passion of yours? Is this, <laughs> is this something you you have an interest in? I mean, I love I love that people would think that's an unlikely thing for a horror writer to write about, mm-hmm. but I actually don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be the first person to point out that horror and comedy sort of strike at similar places. They, they both rely on surprise, mm-hmm. and they both mm-hmm. sort of. There's sort of a physical reaction almost that you have to a good joke and, and to a good scare.
1: Yes, oh that, that's that's right, that's right. And also, they, I mean, they're not unique in this, but they both depend hugely on timing. You know, the actual timing of of of, of, of your of the work. And um, and I think also that there is a sense in which some some kinds of horror, and some kinds of comedy, you know. Um, Stylized material sufficiently that we can ad- address things we would ordinarily not want to address. Um, I think that they certainly have that in common. And there are all sorts of other things too. Um, the the Stooges were something I came to gradually. I was, well, I was and I am really a Laurel and Hardy man, and, and Keaton and Chaplin, you know. Um, but but the students, I, you know, I I, I became, the more I looked at them, the more interesting they became. I've originally seen them on, on British television in the I guess it would be the 80s actually, that they ran the short films in the afternoons. And initially I didn't think they were terribly funny, but I kept going back and looking. And when Sony did a a very good um, chronological series of all the short films in in slipcase sets quite recently on DVD. I, I bought all those and watched them, and I began to think, well, there really is something interesting here, and uh, eventually proposed this monograph. Uh, P.S., again, their the movie uh, imprint, Electric Dreamhouse, um, encouraged me. And so, you know, it's it's. I think it is nearly completed now. It's been years in the making. Every time I thought it was done, it wasn't, but uh, I think it nearly is now.
0: So, do you have like a thesis uh, a statement, so to speak, or mm-hmm. is it more just a history of them or no, an observation? I, I think it's
1: more a personal experience. I think it's the you history know, of my personal experience, really. And you know, the, the more I looked, the more I saw. And certainly, in terms of of their career and the way the films were were put together, and this extraordinary uh, development as the, their pro- career progresses, that material begins to be recycled and um, you know p- p- edited so that different character different uh, members of the of the troupe are playing different roles in different films uh, but using the same footage um, well you know, you 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 must read it to find out I definitely will okay
0: We've talked a little bit about the overnight. I um, I think that you capture the drudgery of retail beautifully <laughs> in that book. And there's a weird kind of camaraderie that you have with people that you work with in that vein. And there's a there's a weird kind of almost like you're out for yourself in a world where everyone's a little bit out for themselves, but there's this mm. weird corporate structure and the way you capture these like morning meetings, uh, the, the character, I believe his name is Woody. Who's the yes. sort of, sort of gung ho cheerleader, uh, sort of, um, smile <laughs> yep. obsessed, uh, <smile-obsessed>, uh <laughs> manager of the place yep. really rang true. Many of these archetypes rang true. I know that it came from a time in your life when you, in order to just, you know, uh, make things a bit more comfortable. Took mm-hmm. took a job at a bookstore. Right. Earlier, earlier, you were referring to not doing too much of a one to one ratio of people in your life mm-hmm. to people in your fiction. But I yeah. recognize so many of the types in the outline, uh-huh. yes. and I was just wondering how much. Like, did the did you ever get any feedback from the people that you worked with uh, that had read that book uh, that maybe thought, wait, is this character based on me? Did you ever hear anything like that? And and just beyond <laughs> that, like, what was that process like? Taking that experience, we were talking <laughs> we were talking about the. Money mundanity of horror talk yeah, about mundane uh, uh, that book leans on that but i think you create a lot of suspense uh, and dread out of just this notion yeah. of this couldn't be a more kind of anodyne set of circumstances and to make it mm, malevolent it yeah. uh, doesn't take that much doing but i thought you did a, a really clever job of oh, it. oh thank you it?
1: very much well well yeah no, no, no i never nobody, nobody ever actually came back to me on that and said it, you know <laughs> is this me or it, it was that them for that matter you know um but, but, they, but because they were, I mean, not, none of the characters were directly based on anybody in the in the shop. I just tried to, you know, do a, you know, a, 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 a decent sort of varied canvas of or cast of, of, of characters. Um, I mean, originally, I thought it was just going to be a short story. I, you know, having worked, it was Borders, actually. Sadly, you know, now gone, the bookstore chain. Um, it was a branch of Borders. And... Um, it was uh, to be honest initially the idea was just the talking lift. I thought you know that that, that something about the voice of the lift would be would definitely you know um, develop into into something darker. And then I began to think well you know there's a bit more to this than the actual entire bookshop. And before I knew it I was I was you know working out a a novel. Um, and yes, I think basically that well, I suppose way back or in, in even my you know, earlier stuff that reads more like me than imitating Lovecraft, um, the, the sort of office, office, civil service office settings, you know, that kind of thing, um, that there is this kind of tension between the, the extremely mundane and the, um, the underlying uncanny. Um, I suppose if I had to think of... That the huge influence on that, and one of my great favorite stories in the film, or great favorite writers in the film, it, it would be Fitzliver and Smoke Ghost, where you know the, the the supernatural comes out of the banal setting rather than invading it, and that, that's a, to my mind, an absolutely vital turning point in in the development of the field. And I think that, to some extent, is where the overnight is coming from.
0: There are two things going on there. Like there is like an ancient underlying. Evil of some sort. Yes, that's yes. like ge- that's like geographical to this mm-hmm, place. Mm-hmm. And then there is something. There is something like the corporate nonsense that's being layered on top of it by this store. There, yes. like, like the fact that Woody as a character remains in the antagonistic in the way that he is throughout the story, both mm-hmm. as a manager and as someone who it's almost like because of his devotion to this store, he's somewhat immune. I mean, it's almost like he's picked his god, and it's yeah. the store. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. yes <laughs> Which is a very absolutely. strange
0: thing to say, but you almost feel yeah. like that insulates him against some of yeah. the consequences that other people are facing, because mm. other people are doing very normal things like trying to get the hell out of there, or trying, <laughs> try, trying to find a friend, whereas yeah, he's yeah. got this sort of allegiance to something that is like... A, Sort of imaginary in the face of the horror, mm-hmm. but I mean that's a case where the horror is not clear to all the like. There's not a group of characters who realize something's going on until you're d- you're deep into the book. No, exactly. And by that time, you've established all these characters through their their sort of point of view chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was wondering how did that that format that structure of a book? How, how did you decide to do it that way? Because it really does take a little while. In fact, I had to flip back and forth a little bit sometimes to make sure I wasn't conflating two characters, but you've got, I don't know, a a dozen or so points of view that we follow in that story. Did you get lost yourself at any point?
1: I don't think, (laughs) I hope not, I hope not. I don't don't think so. It was more the appeal, really, of of everybody's viewpoint, not... uh, Being be, be put together, so that everybody was seeing a little bit of the total picture, but nobody was seeing enough of it to to be, to to be able to be aware of just how terrible things were were getting and were about to get. Until, as you say, the the actual overnight itself, where. You know, they can't avoid knowing some of what's going
0: on. Those inventory nights, I worked for the Apple store for about seven Uh years. And it it didn't matter what position you worked in the store, when it was inventory time, it's like an all-hands-on-deck situation. Mm, And it's sort of like, maybe you're coming in shifts. Some people are coming in and leaving around midnight, and other people are coming in uh, and staying through the night. But it definitely Mm. was like, again, a very relatable... I started. uh, There were some moments in that where I was just supplanting the break room and the back room of the Apple Store. I couldn't help but, like, the the manager's office, the way it's closed off and it's part of, like, another area. All that stuff, I was picturing uh, the place I used to work because it was so... It just started coming back to me so much. In your story, it's people having to straighten things that they know they just straightened. And and there's a bit of madness to that. I mean, it's a funny thing to say that that's an indication of a... Of supernatural invasion, that you're going to have to reorganize that bookshelf that you already thought you organized. But the the, <laughs> yes. the lack of vindication when one of those characters would say, "But I just straightened it," and it's like, "No, you didn't." We can all see that you didn't. Like moments yes. like that, you're right. They, that's that character's private nightmare, yes. and it doesn't yes. it doesn't. They don't have enough details to make it into a, a public nightmare until it's already pretty yes. pretty horrific for for many of the characters. And you're very mean. There's, there's some of your deaths. Some of your deaths can be very mean. I like the fact that in that story, you can't really guess if you were to look at the opening stretch, you wouldn't be able to guess maybe who are the survivors or who are the no, who are the characters no. that have a little bit more life to them. You know, you wouldn't. And I think sure. that's maybe part of the magic trick that you can pull, too, with a large group of characters is it's like a good zombie movie. You shouldn't be able to know who's going to be standing at the end. You know, absolutely. I
1: mean, I would just say I just, the, the whole thing did come out of that whole notion of the overnight which was indeed you know it did happen at the store uh but i wasn't involved you know i, I uh, because I, but they were very good to me actually the management there because they sort of arranged my hours so that i could write every day uh before i came into work and uh, and therefore i couldn't do the overnight
0: i did ask another friend of mine uh if they had any questions for you another fan that would be the writer polly Chatel.
1: oh yes yeah
0: and she had uh, just said that call first is a favorite short story of of hers oh. and kind of wanted to know anything any insight into the creation of of that story uh, uh, I do Ooh. think it's it's a it's a it's such a short breezy story yes. I'm sure it's been uh like anthologized uh, because it kind of fits in. It's got like a, a punchline almost aspect mm, to it, but yes. it is a it yeah. is a really. Uh, I mean, I read it again right before we started talking, so it's like I, I do think it's a great example of a story where you have a a character who's just asking for it enough. Like this this main yes. character is sort of nosy and seems kind of judgmental, mm-hmm. and it's just mm-hmm. enough to set them up for that kind of EC comic <laughs> style, uh, uh, you know, retribution. But uh, yeah, talk a little bit maybe about the origins and the ideas behind
1: Call First, if you can. Oh, well, gosh! This was back in one thousand nine hundred and seventy four and my old agent and friend sadly no longer with us, kirby McCauley, Um he he you was know, trying to find me markets because i 'd just recently gone full time as a writer uh, with no great success, I have to say, and it looked at the marvel marvel comics we 're going to be doing. Um, some horror comics, some uh, n- non, non-comics non code horror comics. And what they wanted to do was run short stories as, well, almost fillers, really, you know, um, on on some pretty conventional themes. So, in fact, we're going back to this thing we were talking about very early on, this, uh, the use of, you know, the, the, of the, the common tropes, like, you know, the werewolf, the zombie and the vampire and so forth. And so I actually mm-hmm. had a go at this, and I wrote... It was kind of extraordinary, I think, because I hadn't done anything in this sort of vein, and and then that form, and and actually within that sort of brief compass before, um, I I got quite excited by the concept. seemed to come out one by one. And in a couple of instances, I got the idea, which was you know, the basic idea of call first, the, you know, the bit of the, 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 if you like, the human or or you know, the, the the undead burglar alarm, if you like. Um, and once I got that, I, was, I wrote lots of notes for it. But as I first write the notes, I basically got the... the, the well, not maybe the outline of the story, but a lot of the actual material. So I was, I was, I was incorporating most of the, the notes I'd written as as sentences without much change and and just, you know, filling in between them and filling in more of the character, I think, particularly. And that was, I think, written in... Each of those stories was probably written in a single day uh, in the main. Um, and I think probably Call First is the best of them, and it certainly appears to have been the most popular. Um, so that was where it came from. Really, I if if, suppose if I had anything in the back of my mind, it was the old EC comics, you know, with the twist in the tail. And I, I was trying to yeah. do something equivalent to to the, 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 you know, the prose equivalent of an EC comic. Although, having said that, there, was the, there were pretty prose heavy, the EC comics anyway, many of them. It was much more text per page than was ordinarily the case in a comic. Um, so, yeah, that's where that came from. And... Uh, yeah, it was very easy to do in it. Well, I did that I did month's work. Yeah, have really months worth of work and six stories in a month. Another
0: pretty short story of yours that I just, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you mm-hmm. about, um, is uh, one that I actually, when I was getting ready for this, I caught an instance of you referring to this story as shaky stuff. So I was like, <laughs> oh, wait, do I like one that, that Ramsey doesn't like that much? But the the story of the companion <laughs> oh.
1: uh,
0: is a story that. When I read the collection Alone uh, with the Horrors, uh-huh. um, which people out there, if you're listening and you want to find a good cross-section of, of Ramsey's work, it's a chronological collection of short stories that goes to, like from the beginning, from some of those Lovecraftian works, on through, what, the early 90s, I believe? Yes, yeah, in just into the 1990s, yeah,
1: that's right. A-
0: it's really fun to read the chronological aspect of that, too, because mm. you really do see you trying on new forms and becoming more comfortable in your own style. Sure. And I believe The Companion, it's early enough in that trajectory where I can see where you were still maybe reacting to, like, these conventional forms of stories, but you were putting your own spin on it. Yeah. But but in that story, I find, like, um, we were talking about, like, the Aikman ability to um, to present you with a situation that's got an eeriness to it without really knowing what's eerie about it right at first. I think the first half of the story, which I believe is the part of the story that you you take issue with. I think I've read you say you wish that the first half lived up to the second half. Mm -hmm. I I, I guess maybe I can see, you know... I could see someone saying, I want to refine my word choices or whatever until their their last breath. I I do think, though, the general sort of... I was just talking about the sin of the protagonist in Call First being that they are kind of poking around someone else's business. (laughs) I think that... I like that the sin of the character in, in The Companion is just that they're sort of... They're kind of just... Exploring. I mean, they're almost yeah. like they're not thinking about the fact that they could be stepping into something a little bit scarier. Mm, the character yeah. is is a person who likes to go on holiday or vacation and likes to go to theme parks and, and yeah. fairgrounds. Yeah. And they've just been to one that they heard was like a vintage fairground, and it's not that. It's a little too modern and li- just not what they were expecting. And and they think they've missed it, but it turns out maybe the fairground they were looking for is 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 down the street. And already that's like a dreamlike scenario where you're mm-hmm. you're at a fairground and then you wander down the street and there's this sort of shut down fairground. Um, and before that, he has an altercation with some kids that he worries might be tracking him. So there's a there's this kind of paranoia that I thought was really effectively delivered in that mm-hmm. first half mm-hmm. of the story. Um, but I definitely can see how you might think the real meat of it is what happens once they get to the old fairground, yeah, which, yeah, is, yeah. which is like debatably whether it's still running or not. And the only ride that's running is a ghost train ride. And those rides have always been creepy to me because of how clumsily Mm. they they attempt to be creepy i mean i find like the the weird the badly made dummy that comes comes out on a metal arm to scare you there's something about the poorly madeness of it and the the Mm. jankiness Mm. of it that makes it scary to me it's like the way a killer in a a homemade mask or something in a slasher film can have a weird kind of freakiness to it yeah so i just i just feel like that's a brilliant setup and it's sort of I mean, it's kind of dreamlike, like the story sort of ends before anything really formative happens to the character. Yeah. But just the notion that the story ends with some level of confirmation that there is a, 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 an intelligence behind uh, the experience that they're going through, that they're not alone in this ghost train cheap fair ride. Um, I just think it's like full of little details that, that really are effective to me, right down to the fact that when, when he first goes around the ghost train, he looks down between the stalls and he can see what looks like two people maybe that work at the fair yes. standing there. And then later when he looks down the same aisle, he can see that there are some bags flapping there that maybe that's what he thought were the people. Mm-hmm. It's full of details like that. And I realize I'm just telling your own story to <laughs> you, but maybe maybe talk to me a little bit about we're the about and,
1: about.
0: <laughs> But I mean, a little bit about like what it is about the first half that you think is shaky, but also what you must like about the second half to have said that much.
1: Well, to be honest, I I just think that the the language of the first half is is, is sort of clumsy. It, 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 It reads to me like a first draft. I mean, it's from the days when, sadly, basically I would try, in the rewrite, I would try and preserve as much of the first draft as I possibly could. Now, these days, I will improve as much as the first half as I possibly could anything everything in it every every single word is is up for grabs so actually it, it has to justify itself to me or it, or it gets changed or deleted in you know something something will happen to it and it doesn't to me it feels like that first half of that story of the companion uh, has not been through that process the second half you know really once he he leaves the 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 modern fairground, probably it it seems to me like um, the the I've I've grasped the prose more more directly, and um, in a way the prose is is more is is is, is it's simplified to an extent. Uh, it, it it's it's much, it's it's much more to the point, I think. Whereas well, I really have a sense in some of the early stuff that you know it's 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 almost overwritten in an attempt to make its points now. You know, so many people like that story that um, you know, I could live with it. I mean I I I, I did at one point think of you know, trying to do a, a revision on it, but it's too remote. You know, it, it's I, somebody else other than me now wrote that story, and I think if I if I went back and tried to do anything with it, it would just it would take out the life from it. I suspect. I mean, um, you know, some people can do it. You know, Stravinsky went back and revised his early ballet scores, but um, you know, I'm, I, I don't have that sort of mindset. So the story must must stay as it is. And you know, I, I, as I say. So many people do seem fond of it. And, 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 you know, to be fair, so many people seem to have got what I wanted to be there, that, uh, you know, however clumsily maybe I've communicated what I wanted to after all. Ramji, I'm out. Okay. Just saying goodbye to my wife. Goodbye. Not forever, obviously. But,
0: yeah. <laughs> right. No, that would be a very un- <laughs> undramatic way to say goodbye, otherwise. <laughs> Oh,
1: goodbye forever.
0: <laughs> no no, I do think there's something about I think there's something that gets to me about the way this this thing plops down in the in the cart mm-hmm. with with the protagonist, and it's it, it's disquieting enough that something seems to have dropped down into the little cart, yep. and they don't seem to have investigated, you know. Yes. Um, then the fact that when they when the natural moment when you would come out uh, and and leave this ride, it just goes back in, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. which is to me again very nightmarish. And yes. then the fact that the the simulacra that has uh, dropped down, simulacrum that has dropped down next to them, then takes their hand yes. is sort of that. I mean, it's similar to maybe the punchline aspect at the end of Call First where it's mm-hmm, like okay mm-hmm. you, you have a definite like if you were going to italicize the last sentence you know that that yeah, would uh, work yeah. uh, but <laughs> i also think for me just that notion that it, it's, it's this floppy kind of scarecrow like being that's sitting there and mm-hmm. i realized one of the things it reminded me of is one of my favorite novellas um uh Nadelman's god oh, by uh, yes. by ted klein mm-hmm. has that horrific man-made creature that at some point is described as like as though someone made it by putting trash or refuse together to mm. create this this man mm-hmm. who is, you know, to the, in that story, there's a narrator or a, a lead character who doesn't realize maybe they became a vessel of something uh cosmic years ago and yeah, that they yeah. sort of opened the door to something and yeah. now they're wondering how much of what they brought into the world came from them and how much came from outside mm. as they start to understand that someone else has harnessed this thing it's a very complicated very rewarding story yes, and it yes. might be my favorite ted klein story but i i think it too strikes there's something to me about the notion that the thing that's coming from you coming for you is going to be this a mockery, in mm-hmm. a way, of, mm-hmm. of a human is, to yeah. me, strikes... It's like, I find it so offensive <laughs> on a cosmic level. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, the story of yours, uh, the novella, Needing Ghosts, mm-hmm. progresses with a, with a sort of dreamlike logic. Oh, gosh, That's yes. Yes. not the same thing, but it's similar to, like, oh, leaving one fairground and walking down the street and finding another yeah. is very dreamlike. And I feel like Needing Ghosts takes that dreamlike aspect and, and runs with it.
1: Oh, I think it did. It did with me in the writing, believe me. Yes, it was more like kind of allowing the subconscious to talk onto the page and anything else I've written. And I was actually coming up here to my desk each morning and basically just writing in order to keep up with it, really, you know, just let it rip and uh, uh, amazed by it. I wish I could do it again, but there you are.
0: Well, I guess the last thing I'd ask would be, is there anything you're reading right now that's uh, really uh, freaking you out or maybe even something that's not, something that's just good?
1: Oh, well, you know what? I just finished reading Eric La Roca's, um collection. Uh, now, uh, the, trees grew, the trees grew because I bled there. Um, it's actually a retitle, I believe, of a limited edition of, of the same book, um, but it's going to be published here in Britain by Titan Books, and that's... Um, Really pretty extraordinary. That that takes you to some truly dark places in, in a very sort of unflinching, precise style. So, yeah, that got to be in, in, in quite a big way. So, um, yeah, that would be my, my, my current recommendation.
0: Well, this has been a pleasure, Ramsey. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. And um, oh, my pleasure! Yeah, you're if there. you keep uh, up the pace, I maybe we'll find a, an excuse to chat again someday. Yeah, I hope
1: so. Listen, thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, let's do it again.
0: I am going to stop recording now. So and can... um, this
1: is not the moment where you think, "Oh, hang on, that didn't record." <laughs>
0: I'm just glad this wasn't a Ramsey Campbell short story because the recording came out just fine with no spectral noises on it. Uh, be sure to pick up Felstones if you haven't already. The best place being flametreepublishing.com because you'd be supporting an independent press by buying it direct. Uh, but any place you buy a book in 2022, I encourage it. And now a couple notes. The background music you heard during this show came from a 1968 recording of Olivier Messiaen's appropriately titled Quartet for the End of Time, which was recommended by Ramsey when I asked him to suggest some pieces that might fit the tone of the show. And lastly, you can find this show and other podcasts like it by following FYIZ wherever you get your favorite podcasts. That's right, FYIZ, a single podcast feed with multiple shows on it, a fact that leaves many confused and others merely indifferent. Anyway, that's all for now. We should probably get out of here.